So as we come to today's text in Psalm 51, uh, we've reached another milestone in our expository look through the 150 hymns of the Old Testament scriptures. So today we're actually over the one-third mark. So congratulate yourselves, you survived. (laughs) And today's text uh, is especially intriguing, at least to me, because Psalm 51 uh, is one of just a very few psalms that actually pinpoint their exact historic origin and the precise incident that inspired it. So if you've been reading ahead, you uh, saw the heading of this psalm, the superscription uh, of it goes like this. It's labeled, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's pretty specific, right? Uh, And what a story. Even for a secular audience, uh, in fact, this reads like a television or a movie plot, doesn't it? Uh, and it, it has been a television and movie plot, both more than once. And it's not hard to see why. Because this drama has everything Hollywood wants, doesn't it? Uh, a handsome and powerful leading man, a beautiful woman, love, war, intrigue, treachery, betrayal, murder and the engine that drives the whole plot is sex right i mean what more could a screenwriter ask for Uh, in fact the story has major motion picture production written all over it Uh, but we're going to confine ourselves today not to its literary value but to the lovely scripture that it produced in the form of psalm 51 uh, that actually unlike any other sermon that you've ever heard me preach to you before I'm not going to be reading the text to you until the very end of the message. Because instead of, of reading it and then unpacking it like we normally do, what I want to do today is to have you see the circumstances that fed into it and then really feel its power when we share it together. But first to do that, we've got to back up. We have to back up exactly nine months before Psalm 51 was penned. Uh, back up actually to March of 989 BC in the capital city of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah and inside the private chambers of the king. So that's where the story starts. Uh, If you want to follow along, I'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And we're told, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, which, by the way, fellas, I think sanctifies our afternoon naps, just (laughs) parenthetically there, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And now the writer kind of inserts a a parenthetical message to us, the readers. He said she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. And then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. And David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked him, 
how Joab and the army were getting along and, and how the war was progressing. And then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night in the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. And when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home and, and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I, I swear I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him to dinner. And he got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife Again, he slept in the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. And the letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, and then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. He said, the enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and we chased them back to the city. The archers on the wall shot at us, and some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. David replied, well... Tell Joab not to get discouraged. David said, the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the mourning period was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace and she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He, he cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived to the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. And David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs for the poor man, for the one he stole, and for having no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this terrible thing? For you murdered Uriah the Hittite with a sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. 
And then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you will not die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. So you can't accuse the Bible of being boring, right? I mean, have you ever read a novel with that many plot twists? I mean, you know, as I said, I said in the beginning, uh, we've just about got it all covered. We've got, we've got love and, and murder and treachery and intrigue. But, but you know, if you, if you think about the story for a minute in terms of traditional storytelling, there's a little bit of a problem. Uh, one I'll bet you didn't notice, because I really didn't either until further study, but there's a very common element missing from today's account. Because in that whole narrative, there's not a single mention of the feelings or the motives or the reaction of any of the characters, is there? That's just very straightforward. Did you notice that? Like how Israel's at war and David is the king, so why isn't David out in the field with the rest of the soldiers? Why did he stay at home this time? Uh, has he gone soft? Did he become a politician? Has he become a peeping Tom? Right? Or, or is he just another oriental potentate who sends men out to risk their lives while he's protecting his own? But you know, there's not a single hint of an answer given in the story. Uh, and then there's Bathsheba. What about her? Remember the, the biblical writer made that note for us that it wasn't just a regular bath she was taking, but a ritual cleansing required by the Old Testament following her menstrual period. And that's inserted. It's a significant detail so that we can be certain who the father of Bathsheba's child would be. But when you read that story, you have to wonder, was David's glimpse of Bathsheba just an innocent accident? Or did she set him up? Now, could she possibly have been aware of the sight lines between her garden and the palace roof? Right? Again, a question with no answers. What about Joab, David's commander, right, uh, who had to do the dirty work? Did it bother him? We know a lot about Joab. He was never squeamish when it came time for killing, but did he have any private qualms about killing Uriah, uh, about betraying and murdering one of his best officers? You know, in fact, as we go through the story, Uriah is the only innocent character in the whole plot, right? And he's a Hittite. He's a non-Israel. He's a foreigner. He's a Gentile. He was an outstanding soldier. The Bible tells us he was one of David's mighty men, a special group of 30 warriors who made up kind of an elite unit in David's army. So he obviously earned his place there through his courage and his ability, but you know, it just so happened that circumstances made him become an obstacle to David's private pleasures, didn't it? Uh, he became a threat to the king's reputation. Because no matter what David tried, he couldn't trick Uriah into going home to visit his wife. So that everyone, including Uriah, would think that the baby was his. So if you think about it, this Gentile mercenary actually behaved with more honor drunk than King David did sober. So he had to go. Uriah had to be eliminated to avoid a royal scandal. And so this, this whole ugly affair uh, is kind of cynically and methodically tidied up when David made Uriah carry the message containing his own death sentence back to Joab. Now that's a nice touch in the story, isn't it? I mean, David could have given the Godfather some lessons, right? There's something kind of especially sickening about the way Uriah was killed, but, 
Again, there's a question. Did, did Uriah ever suspect anything? And once more, there's no answer. We don't know. We aren't given the answers to any of those questions about the, the various characters. We can guess. We could try to read between the lines. We can maybe imagine what they thought or how they felt, but we can't say for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us about the feelings or the reactions of any of the participants in this drama except for one, just one. When we read in verse 27, but this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Right, and that statement, that kind of concluding sentence of the story is really the key to the whole affair. We're not told how David or Bathsheba or Joab or Uriah felt, but we are told how God felt about it. And you know, the point of this drama of David and Bathsheba is not simply to reveal the depths of human sinfulness or to show the awful things that uh, even God-fearing people are capable of. We don't need the Bible to teach us that, do we? Right? We can see enough evidence for human depravity everywhere, including within our own hearts. Uh, in fact, you almost have to wonder why the story of David and Bathsheba was even included in the Bible. Right? I mean, it isn't very flattering to one of the Bible's lead characters, is it? I mean, here's David, Israel's greatest king with the most shameful things that could be in a person's life kind of exposed for everybody to see. But you know, that's really the point because David isn't the Bible's hero. God is. Right? Preserving David's reputation isn't what interested the biblical writer, but promoting God's reputation. Because you know, most other... Uh, ancient history was written to glorify nations and to glorify their kings. Kind of like that uh, old saying goes, history is written by the victors. Right? But don't fall into the common misconception that the stories in the Bible are just about the people in the Bible. Israel's history was written to glorify not its earthly king, but our heavenly Lord. And to illustrate his attributes and to, to show off, so to speak, the beauty and the purity and the righteousness of God's character and to the reveal the truth about his nature. That's the reason. Uh, it's his reaction to this drama that's the crucial one. So just quickly, having said all that, what do we learn about God from this story? Well, one thing we learn is that, uh, first of all, God is all-seeing. The one before whom all hearts are open, no secrets are hidden, and, you know, sinful humans plot treachery and mischief. They try to keep their evil deeds from the light, but God knows what we're doing. I mean, in the end, there's not going to be any unsolved mysteries. There's not going to be any successful cover-ups. There's not going to be any conspiracies enforced by uh, silence or, or murder. And eventually, every sinister scheme, every crooked plot, and every evil deed is going to be exposed by the God who sees what we do in secret and abhors the hidden crimes that we commit and then try to hide. The other thing we learn is God is impartial. He's not a respecter of persons, the Bible tells us. High or low, rich or poor, famous or unknown, powerful or insignificant. There isn't, like we see in our modern world, one set of laws for people with connections and money and one set, a different set, for those of us who are powerless and friendless, right? Right? I mean, and that's a good thing. Think how terrible it would be if we lived in a world where ultimately, uh, in an eternal sense, the Uriahs of the world are always killed and betrayed and the Davids always get away scot-free. But it's not that way. See, 
God holds everyone responsible for their own actions. And finally and quickly, we learn from the story that our God, uh, above all of those things, is wonderfully merciful. I mean, after all, the easiest thing in the world would have been for God to allow David to go on to his ultimate doom, right? Guilty of his sin and his treachery. But instead, the Lord sent Nathan to stir David's conscience and to reclaim his heart. And of all the the wonderful and beautiful things that David said and, and prayed and sang during the course of his life, his Holy Spirit-led reaction to Nathan's rebuke impacted not just David's eternal destiny, but has come down to us as a source of comfort uh, and consolation to the people of God right up to today in Psalm 51. So if you're following along in your Bible, this is the result of David's story today. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And you know, God's response to that beautiful confession of David was this gracious word from heaven when Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sins. You know, when David repented, God forgave him, not because David was able to make amends, Forgiveness isn't something we can earn from God. Forgiveness is a gift. A gift given out of God's gracious mercy. Maybe something that some of us need today. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and God is saying something to you, to your heart, about speaking to you about a particular sin or an area of your life you thought was a secret. But guess what? Even if nobody else knows, He knows. But I'm also here to tell you whatever it is, it can hardly be worse than what we read about David doing today. But God still loved him. And he loves you. And he forgave David. And he can forgive you too. The Bible says he he doesn't stand far off, but he stands ready to forgive right here, right now, today. And he's waiting at the table. Will you come? Will you come to his table of mercy? Let's pray together.